This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're having conversations about how to do good better and faithfully. Hello, and welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we are seeking to learn how to do good better and do it faithfully. Here with my colleague and friend, Jamie Ayton. I'm Kent Annan, and we are grateful today to be talking with Brent Davis, who is Director of Canadian Ministry Projects for Samaritan's Purse Canada. And our topic today, we're really glad you're with us, Brent, are the fires. You know, we've seen these devastating fires in Maui, just a horrible scene. There are serious fires going on in British Columbia, up near to where you are, Brent. So we really wanted to walk through now, you know, what's it like? How is the response being prepared when you first see something like this might happen? You know, what are the first days, the weeks afterwards? So that's our our plan today and hope that all you who are listening are informed by, you know, we see these images in the news and there's lots of work that happens before. And then we won't, don't want to forget, you know, after seeing the devastation that there's lots of healing and recovery to do. So yeah, thanks for being with us, Brent. Yeah, thanks, Kent. Brent, tell us first. So when you first hear about a fire, it might have happened kind of quickly, you know, overnight, or it could be like building, getting closer to a town. How are you preparing for a potential response as, as Samaritan's First as an NGO? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, I'd back it up even further than than those early days. So we have a mantra that uh, anytime we're not responding, we're preparing. Hmm. And that's been part of our ethos as, uh, as an organization, whether we're responding globally or here in Canada. And so we are constantly refining our processes, we're training our teams, and we're acquiring and reviewing our asset needs. We've got significant rolling assets that we're able to bring into a community. And I'll talk a little bit about that later, but the ability to be able to bring bring all of our own logistics and uh, logistical capacity into a community that's been impacted by disaster is so critical. Could you, just before you go on, let's say what that yeah. is. Like, what are the assets? And when you say that, we're all, I think we're sure. all intrigued and trying to list in our minds, you know, what, what those assets are. So go for it. <laughs> yeah. So for Samaritan's Purse, so when we respond within North America, our what you would call our sort of our flagship asset is what we call a disaster relief unit and a disaster relief unit is itself a custom fitted semi-tractor trailer it uh, has an office in the nose of the trailer that has all sorts of communications equipment we manage all of our activities out of that office and it becomes i mean it's pretty tight quarters for the amount of work mm-hmm. that we're doing it's it might be 80 square feet and we could have four or five people in there trying to manage phones and navigate teams. The rest of the trailer, it has two floors. If you can imagine kind of a a NASCAR style trailer and the bottom floor is uh, all cabinets with tools and equipment. The top floor again is equipment. And that asset is supported by any number of other support pieces. So whether we require on-site feeding, we have kitchen units to support our teams, bunk houses, shower units. As often as we can, we partner with a local church in the impacted community. And so we'll use a church as a command center. We'll use it to house volunteers. But as you can appreciate, most churches 
may or may not have adequate cooking facilities for you know, 100 volunteers staying overnight, or they may not have showers. Lots of churches don't have showers. As soon as you introduce showers, you can make anything a hotel. <laughs> and so what we really strive to do is we want our footprint to be 100% contained. And we do not want to draw off of a community that is already taxed recovering from a disaster to have to support our operations. And so we bring in everything that we need to be able to support our teams and the work that we do. And as I say, that takes months and months of planning and staffing and volunteers to make sure that all of this equipment is ready to go so that when the call goes out, you know, we're not servicing equipment on the way to a response. It's kind of like your volunteer fire department in that sense. So to kind of get to, let's say, you know, day zero, wildfire breaks out we are, as an organization, part of our preparedness is uh, also connectivity. And so our teams are connected to federal, state, provincial emergency management officials. So whether that's in the U.S., FEMA, in Canada, we don't have a FEMA equivalent, but uh, each province manages its own emergency management coordination. And uh, as in, I think, common emergency management doctrine across North America is the local authority, the local municipality has all of the jurisdictional authority for its response. And it reaches up to the next jurisdiction as its response capacities become tapped out. So we're connected with those authorities. We're receiving regular reports for uh, anticipated responses so that when something happens, we have a term that we use where we can move at the speed of trust. So we've already built a trust relationship with local government, with state and provincial governments, so that we're not introducing ourselves and what it is we can offer at time of incident. We're already, ideally, we're on their speed dial. In some cases, they at least know of us and we can let them know, hey, we're monitoring what's going on in your jurisdiction. These are resources that we can offer in and we can coordinate that response. The last thing we want to do is self-deploy into a zone where we don't have the invitation of the local authority and all of a sudden we're either duplicating services or we're creating liabilities or challenges we want to be a value add when we come in so for the most part from start to finish or i guess i should say from deployment to startup hmm. we're usually 24 to 72 hours depending on how far we've got to go from leaving one of our facilities to being set up and operational in a community. And we train on that. And I'm so impressed with our teams, how quickly we can organize, get vehicles rolling, get set up, and then all of the things that need to be set up in a community, whether it's temporary power, whether it's water, communications, all of those things, they happen at a moment's notice and we can run with it pretty quick. Yeah, you know, Brent, as I reflect on what you've just shared, I think it's really important for us who are listening to realize just what it takes to actually prepare to be able to do this work well. And because of that, it's actually one of the reasons why Kent and I often tell others not to be an SUV, spontaneous, unaffiliated volunteer. So right. I'm just curious how you've seen that maybe play out in your line of work. Yeah, oftentimes we will see this and it's as a result of people really desiring to help their neighbors. And that's one of the things we recognize in every community we go into, neighbors want to help their neighbors, especially in those early days of response and early recovery, where we see the community coming together and we enter into this sort of heroic phase of the disaster cycle. 
But the risk is individuals who, again, very well-meaning and properly motivated, they don't necessarily know who needs help or what appropriate help looks like. And that's one of the things that I love about Samaritan's Purse is we bring in, in addition to equipment and assets, I mean, those things are nothing without volunteers and trained staff, but we bring a fairly light management team in for the purpose of leveraging that local community heart of people that want to come and help. And they don't have to know which end of a hammer to hold. They can show up. We'll pair them with trained leadership and we connect them with the people that need help. And we lead them as a team to go and actually accomplish work that we know is going to be beneficial. And it's a beautiful way to marry, especially the church, but anybody can come and volunteer with us. You know, churches that uh, they want to help, but it doesn't make sense or it's not practical for a church to become an NGO overnight just because some disaster happened in their community. I like how you described that, Brent. And it's encouraging for people like Jamie and me as well, because last time we used a hammer, I think it was trying to fix a computer problem <laughs> in our office, and it went, as you might predict, it did. <laughs> so that's beautiful, because you're not going into a place, the local community, but like you said, you're spending every day obsessing about the details and best practices and all that, so you can to go in and kind of help a community help itself, those who are able to help, you know, helping those who are helped. So then you get there, 24 to 72 hours, you've been in touch with You've been preparing, you've been in touch with local authorities, you're talking already, you arrive. What are the priorities on your mind? Is it finding the volunteers? Is it the base? Like what's happening then from, let's say it was 48 hours, you know, for you to get on the ground, you know, then what happens next? What are the next priorities? Yeah. So we have two objectives that are happening simultaneously. One is identifying need. And we do that through a number of means. But that disaster relief unit I was telling you about earlier, there's a central phone number for each one of those units. And we populate the entire affected community with that phone number. And that's, again, our relationships with local authorities is so important because they can help get the information out that help is available. You can call this number and somebody will answer it and begin to activate that needs assessment. Once somebody calls us, lets them know that they have need in a fire response. Generally, we're focusing on things like possession recovery, or you know, we sort of commonly refer to it as ash sifting. Mm-hmm. And we're going through the ash of somebody's home to return to them uh, treasured or invaluable possessions. And we also do work with dangerous trees. In a lot of cases, fire has weakened trees and created a dangerous environment. And I'm not sure about the US, but in Canada, that's often not an insurable loss. And so for us to be able to deal with those trees is a huge benefit, could save a homeowner five, ten thousand dollars in removing those things. And this is money that folks just don't have. And then we're also doing, uh, in a lot of cases, we're doing debris management. So in a wildfire scenario, those three areas, we'll put it out to the community and we'll start encouraging people to let us know if they need help. And we build what we call a work order list based on that. And at the same time we're assessing need, we're also recruiting volunteers. And in the early days, the trickiest balance is, uh, and I've been doing this for 16 years, it's still stressful on those, those first few days, whether you have the appropriate amount of volunteers over against the appropriate amount of work, because you don't want to be in a position where you've got 
hundreds of requests for assistance and six volunteers up against it all. Hmm. But at the same time, you don't want to have a hundred volunteers standing out in front ready to work and you've got two requests for assistance and you got to try and fit 50 people into each house. So that's a delicate balance. And we recruit both from the community itself and we do that primarily through church networks. And we help the church recognize that they have a role to play. And disaster relief allows church people, Christ followers, to be invited into homes of folks who would never otherwise darken the door of a church and be able to share that hope and the love that is synonymous with Christianity. And that's a huge win because there's so much that the church offers that's often unknown and unnoticed in community. And so we want to, when we leave, our goal is that we've actually built bridges between the faith community and the local authorities. And I realize that as a bit of a rabbit trail, but it's important that the church recognizes that it actually has something to offer into the community. And also that the community recognizes that the church has something to offer. And in a lot of cases, it's simply a language barrier. And we have the ability to be a trusted entity, both on the municipal, the state and the provincial level, but we're also a trusted entity on the local church level. And we can translate emergency management speak into church speak. And we can translate church speak into emergency management speak and recognize that each industry, if you want to call them that, have created their own language. And language becomes a huge barrier to these two areas integrating and actually serving the community well. And that's something that we focus on in our response phase, but it's something we focus on much more in long-term recovery. And for any of those who have responded to disasters, you probably know what Brent is talking about, especially when coming into contact with the emergency management profession that I've never encountered any other profession that has more acronyms and, you know, everything's like three or four letters. Wait a minute. What do you mean? There's the OFS by the DHS to the FEMA <laughs> down to the, you know, NCC. And then we've got a, you know, so at the ICS. So <laughs> I mean, you could talk a whole conversation and never use an actual word <laughs> right. in emergency management. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that translate and the tra- and it ties in. Then there's the translation to the trust, which I yeah, you know, I love how you said that earlier, Brent. Of like trust is sort of what helps to make this whole thing run in such so much need and speed, and and everything's moving along. So then we'll keep on jumping in, but then thinking about the timeline. Okay, so you've 48 hours, and you're recruiting while you're also assessing needs. Then you're starting to link these two parts together, sort of the, with your management team, I assume, like you're that's right meeting the needs that you're assessing. You're getting volunteers who are now ready to go, but because you're there, they can kind of channel their efforts into what's most helpful as well. So then in a town, like what does that look like for the next, you know, how do you think about the next phase? Is it, you know, the next few weeks? Is it the next few months? What's the next phase that goes after that starts? Yeah. And I think just from the emergency management continuum conversation, each phase of a disaster, you know, nobody rings a bell and says, now we've transitioned from response to recovery. Now we've transitioned from recovery to mitigation, that everything blends. 
And what we call response is probably more formally known as early recovery because we're not engaged in life safety. But that work that I was explaining earlier of debris management, of sifting, that's what we would call response. Generally, that lasts on average four to six weeks on an average response. Major responses, I mean, that can be months. Mm-hmm. Like the scale of Ma- the scale of something like Maui that we see. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While we're in that mode, we're also assessing long-term needs. And in the Canadian context, we have a different environment than in the U.S. And one of the significant differences is we have a very generous social safety net in Canada. And so for those who are dealing with uninsurable events, there are government programs that will really help move somebody from an infrastructure perspective, will help move them to a place of safe, warm, and dry. Whereas my understanding is FEMA benefits for uninsurable losses are not sufficient to be able to get somebody back into a home oftentimes. And so we don't have the same need in Canada for reconstruction of critical infrastructure, but uh, the common needs around community development, community resilience, and individual resilience are huge. And so that's how we've tailored our long-term recovery. And we recognize that recovery to a major disaster, and the literature bears this out, takes anywhere from five to 10 years. It's not over in 12 months. And the news cycles become shorter and shorter. We recognize that even organizations and charitable organizations such as ourselves, especially those that don't specialize in disaster management, or certainly not in disaster recovery, there's an understanding or a pressure from their constituency to see all of those dollars expended within 12 months. Mm -hmm. And the reality is you're only going to find the most simple cases to be able to spend dollars on within the first 12 months. The real complexity and the real significant need for external assistance, whether it's financial assistance, whether it's emotional, spiritual assistance, don't start surfacing until the 18 to 24 month mark. And that's when, you know, we've long since passed the heroic and honeymoon stage of the disaster curve and we're well into disillusionment. People have been fighting with their insurance companies. They have non-standard needs that don't fit neatly into a helping organization's matrix for being able to provide support. And that's really where, as an organization, Samaritan's Purse Canada, we noticed a significant gap within the Canadian context that every organization and even government, they show up with a focus on critical infrastructure, with a focus on the loss that is seen. So we see all of these images, and Maui's a great example. You see these images of completely devastated homes, shops, buildings, all of those things. And we say, my goodness, the task of rebuilding these is, is Herculean. But behind each of those homes and shops is a human being. Mm-hmm. And that human being has far more complex needs than just a roof over their head. They have needs that are economic. They have needs that are emotional. They have needs that are social. And there's organizations that, and community groups that provide answers to those needs. But these individuals have never, most of them have never had to access a social safety network. And most organizations, especially community-based organizations, they understand their community 
but they don't understand a disaster. And external organizations coming in, oftentimes they understand disaster, but they don't have a hot clue about what the community dynamics are looking like. And so when we do community entry, we're trying to assess both of those groups independently and then convene them together so that they're talking to one another. And those complex cases where one organization can't meet all of the needs of an individual, it can come to that table and it can be parceled out without the individual having to go and self-source each organization to try and get their needs met while they're dealing with their own trauma. That stuff's like kryptonite to Superman. Hmm. A normal thinking person, when faced with that level and scale of trauma, loss of home, loss of community, loss of environment, they can't make good decisions. Our brains go into protective mode. And that's where we want to be able to step in and work with individuals from a holistic point of view and help them map their own path to recovery. Jamie, I had to opt out of the trip because I broke my leg, but you were up with Samaritans first with Brent and others. What did you observe about their preparation and just what Brent talked about with spiritual first aid of like sort of matching those needs in those complex cases? And you know, what were you up there and what was the purpose and how that ties into what Brent and his team do? Yeah, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me while I was there helping provide the spiritual first aid training workshop Brent was just the overall arching picture of how you approach this work and ministry that you're preparing, but also that you're really thinking from before you even leave to deploy about how are we going to help communities for the long term. And there was a study done by MIT from the Media Lab uh, several years back. And what they found was that donation giving tends to drop off and almost follow the amount of media attention a disaster gets. And so you you were kind of talking about how, you know, we see that early onset and then we, in many cases, I think just assume, oh, things must be getting back to normal. But like you were saying that it can sometimes take five, 10, sometimes even more years for a community to actually just get back to where they were before. And that was one of the things that I really appreciated about what Samaritan Purse Canada is doing and just your approach. There was a probably about a year or so ago, I was asked to consult with a denomination who was actually thinking of starting a disaster relief arm. And they were saying, okay, what's the biggest need? We want to be a denomination that meets unmet needs. And it's like, don't go in at the very beginning, or if you do, make sure that you have a focus on long-term recovery and long-term care. And they're like, nah, we'd rather just go in right at the beginning and be out in a couple of weeks. And there is a need for that. But like what you were talking about, all this effort goes in, but we have to find ways, right, to be able to care for communities for that long term. So I'm grateful for the way that you all approach this work. Thanks, Jamie. Yes, it is. So like you said, Brent, and you just echoed, Jamie, it is sobering to think it looks so bad and then to think, oh, it's five to 10 years of recovery. So this is, as we say sometimes with our students, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And it's holistic and complex when it gets to the people, like the infrastructure is devastating, but there's this other complexity of people behind it. Uh, with that in mind, I thought would close with this, Brent. Is there a story that kind of keeps you going or some experience, you know, it's in the midst of it or a community that you worked with and five years later you see where they are, sort of some story that shows like, you know, answers some of that why question, you know, why do you do this work that you do? There's a lot of stories. It's always a challenge to find one. If you'll permit me, I'll share a quick individual story and community story. Be great. So 
from an individual perspective, Jamie, you talked about how long it takes for communities to get back to normal. I think that that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks is this human nature to equate recovery with getting back to normal because we have that rubber band desire. We want everything to be the way that it was. And one of the biggest hurdles is helping individuals and helping communities realize that it's never going to be the way that it was. The community has changed permanently and especially on major disasters. And there's all sorts of reasons why, but just think about if it's five years and people have been displaced for five years or even one year, people will lay down roots where they've been displaced. And so neighbors are different, just the physical physical environment of the community is different. So trying to help people imagine what new normal will look like, even though I, I hate that overused term. But great example of that was one of the communities we worked in. There was a 90-year-old widow, lost her home to wildfire, and she was convinced that she was going to rebuild this home because that was that drive to go back to normal. And after working with our team, we were able to help her see some different options and say, well, maybe there's a different path. Do you realize what's involved in building a home? Is that something you want to do at 90? Or Hmm. do you want to explore some other opportunities or some other options for how you might want to live uh, and not be consumed with fighting with contractors and insurance companies and so on and so forth? So I love that ability to be able to enter into an individual's world with open hands. We're not offering a product or a service, but we're approaching that individual holistically and assessing what strengths they have and then what opportunities they have for moving forward. From a community perspective, we spent a year in Prince Edward Island following Hurricane Fiona with the express purpose of helping the church build resiliency within its own community. There were seven churches in this small community. In fact, there were two of those churches that had members sitting on town council. And you think, well, there's already a bridge that's built. But those councilmen couldn't actually articulate what benefit the church brought to the community. Mm -hmm. So we walked them through a process of asset mapping, which quite simply is helping the church take inventory of the things that it does every day and the assets that it has that are actually super helpful to a community and to community health. And then we were able to take that, help them relanguage some of it into a way that makes sense to the municipality. They brought it to the municipality through a meeting. And uh, we're at a place now where the municipality is actually going back to the church saying, if we resource you guys, can we leverage these assets that you have in a disaster? And to me, that's such a win. The church didn't really change what it does. The church is still being the church. It's just looking at it through the lens of community health, as opposed to just providing a service for its congregants. And I really think that's what the church ought to be all about. That's what the church was originally about, was being a beacon of light in the community. And that's really what we're about. When we go into a community, I don't want Samaritan's Purse to shine. That's not my goal. Our goal is to be an avenue for the church to shine in its community so that when we leave, the light stays on. Brent, thank you for the work that you're doing as you know, we're, we see these devastating fires. It's, we're grateful to know that you and other groups who, who every day are preparing for these moments to step in and help 
wisely and effectively in the short term and long term is really great to know. And the way you do this with the church is really meaningful. So thank you, Brent. And thank you to each of you who are listening. We are grateful to be on this path together of learning how to do good better. Well, thanks, Jamie. Thank you, Kent. Really appreciate my time with you. Thanks, Brent. Bye-bye. In closing, thank you for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. Be sure to check out our show notes for helpful links and resources, including those to Curtis's new book. And as always, feel free to email us with your questions or comments at hdi at wheaton.edu. We look forward to being with you again soon as we continue together on this journey of learning to do good better. Tell me, tell me.